All right. It's a shame y'all don't like each other. Hardest thing every week is trying to get y'all to stop talking so I can start talking for like hours. That's the way it works. Hey, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new, I'm so glad you're here. We are um, a group of people that are experiencing Jesus in a a very uh, real way. And we're not much about religion, but we're big into a relationship. And all of us, I say this almost every week, all of us got to a point in our lives where we realized we weren't really good at being God. And we actually need him. And so we get to a point where we come into a place like this and we think, wow, if I could just learn everything I need to learn about Jesus, I can make a decision. But then what happens is we come here and we begin to learn and we think we're here to gain information. But what happens is we fall in love and we meet Jesus and and the information is important. But the main thing is the relationship. And so we learn that as we surrender, he changes us. We, we don't change. He changes us on the inside. And so every week we come back and we just want more. And we, we worship him for what he's done. We thank him for everything he's done. And we try to learn more. And we want to make sure that we surrender more. Because the more we surrender, the more he can change us. And the more he changes us, the better our lives become. And, and all of us are here, many of us, because we experience that. And some people here may be going, you know, that's just nuts. You guys are a cult. You're crazy. Okay, I thought that too. I really did. I mean, I really did until it happened to me. So I want to start today. We're in a series. I'll get to what we're covering today. But anybody in the high school band or junior high band when you were growing up? We're looking for worship. No, just kidding. Um, What kind of instruments did y'all play? What did you play, Robin? You twirled the flags. All right. Somebody else. What instruments? Drums. Trumpet. Flute. Wow, we have a band. I didn't even know we had a band. Yeah, all right. Well, I was a trombone dude. You know, trombones, right? The year was 1974, summer band camp, Atwell Junior High School in Dallas, Texas, home of the Mighty Archers. I found myself completely against my will in the trumpet and horn section. And of all places, the band. I knew I was out of place. You see, I was a football player. I, I, I didn't do this band stuff. And the only reason that halftime even existed is because we had to go to the bathroom. Otherwise, there wouldn't even be a halftime show. I came from a very musical family. I grew up, my mom was an opera singer. My dad loved that kind of music, and he took me to it over and over and over. My brother was first chair in clarinet. I thought it was first come, first service, pick any chair you want, but I found out that that's important. <laughs> My sister was all city, all state, all country, all world in five different instruments. Yet I was clearly a mutant. <laughs> I failed the recorder in third grade. I was dismissed on mercy from my very first piano lesson. I failed guitar, I failed choir, yet there I was on the first day of summer band camp, sitting in the trumpet section, holding of all things a trombone. I might have been a musical mutant, but I was pretty smart, or so I thought. Mom and dad made me go to band camp. They said if it didn't work out, I wouldn't have to do it again. So here I am at band camp, and I told them, I told the band director I could play the trombone. I figured I would just sit with them and watch what they do, and when the time came, I would just, you know, move like they did and blow like they did. And and when the time came, I I would just fake it. I would just watch the person next to me. And for a little while, it worked. When everybody was warming up, it actually worked. I walk around that first day telling everybody I could play the trombone. I looked like part of the band. I acted like part of the band. Some of the girls thought it was cool that a football player had a soft side. I played that up. For a few minutes, it actually worked. I could pretend like I was in the band. But then it came time when the director showed up and the trumpets really blew. I won't bore you with the details of my colossal band failure. But let's just say when the horns finally blew, everybody knew I wasn't ready. The sound of the trumpet changed everything. When the trumpet sounded, my charade came to a crashing end. There are a lot of parallels between my experience with the mighty Atwell Archer Band 
and a day on God's prophetic calendar when the trumpet's going to blow. And you're going to find out if you're really part of that or whether you're just faking it and looking like everybody else. Today, we're going to unpack the fifth feast of seven. Now, we have been in this series about the feasts. And, you know, you may say, well, that sounds really boring. That's in the Old Testament. What does that have to do with anything? Well, every story in the Old Testament and every story in the New Testament and everything that happens is all about Jesus. And God wanted to make absolutely sure that when the Messiah came, the world didn't miss him. And so the entire Old Testament is full of stories about Jesus. The prophets would say what he looked like. Last summer, or actually Christmas, we went through the promised one. We looked at the prophecies and how Jesus fulfilled them. And then he he wrote signs throughout history, signs in the stars, signs in the prophets, signs in his word. And one of the ways he showed us the Messiah was through the seven feasts that he called appointed times. Seven times a year, he said, I want you to stop what you're doing. I want you to pay attention to me. This is my day. I'm making it holy. I'm calling it holy. And here's what you're going to do. And you look at those seven feasts and you think, well, that's random. It looks like we're just sacrificing animals. What purpose does this have? Why did he make them do this on that day? And then what happens is you begin to realize that every feast points to a moment in the life of Jesus. That by celebrating the feasts, we're seeing Jesus. And we've been through this so far, we're, we've passed the Feast of Spring. And what you learn is there are seven feasts, four are in the spring, three are in the fall. The four that are in the spring were fulfilled prophetically by Jesus during the time he was here the first time. The next three, which we're starting to look at today, will be fulfilled when Jesus returns the second time. We saw how the Passover, he was the Passover lamb at the Feast of uh, unleavened bread. He was the sinless one put away who comes back on the day of first fruit, rises from the dead as the first fruit of humans. And then we saw the festival of weeks or Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came and empowered people for the mission that God had called them to. And now prophetically, we're kind of in that window in the middle between the spring and the fall. And if this makes no sense to you, it's okay. Because you can go on the Frank Bible Truth YouTube channel. You can watch all this. It's all out there. You can also look on our website. You can listen to the podcast. But this is an important thing to understand. We are now looking at feast number five, the first fall feast that God outlines in Leviticus 23. The three remaining feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, these three fall feasts points to events that will occur in our future in the life of the Messiah, Jesus. By studying these feasts, we can paint a picture of the future. Just like the Jewish nation could use the spring feast to point to his first coming, we can study the fall feast and begin to understand his second coming. Jesus wanted to make sure that we knew what actually in the world is going on, that we weren't caught by surprise. He said we should be able to recognize the signs. Signs are everywhere. They're in the heavens, they're on earth, they're among people, they're in the hearts of people. There are signs in the Bible throughout all the Old Testament prophets. And the red letters of Jesus himself point us to the future and the promise of the Holy Spirit and the promptings of the Spirit to teach us all. So we're here to learn about what's to come. When it comes to the fall feasts, we see things all around us, right in front of us on TV, in the headlines. Let me share with you some of the things God said would happen in his word, and we'll just see if we recognize any of those things happening today. Jesus said, you know, things visible in our world should shout to us that Jesus' return is, I'm amazed he hasn't come back yet. Just saying, I say it every week. I can't believe we're back here again. Because he should be back at any moment. And you may be going, okay, time out. You're one of those guys, right? Okay, time out. Everybody who's ever lived on the entire planet had always thought Jesus was coming back in the next week or two. Every generation thought he was. Crazy people have even tried to predict the date. I heard a story once of a little girl who, they they had a clock in their house, a grandfather clock, and every night at nine o'clock, she and her mom and dad, they would pray and they would listen to the thing ring nine times. The thing, the clock, ring nine times. One night, something happened. It went kind of nuts, and it rang like 15 times. And the little girl looked at her parents, and she said, wow, it's later than it's ever been. 
But when it comes to Jesus' return, it's later than it's ever been. Jesus warned us not to be complacent. So let me share with you some signs that should wake us up a little bit and look at the prophetic timing of the fall feasts. I'm going to list them now. Later in the series after this, we're going to move into the book of Revelation, which I've taught on before, but we're going to do it again because we're living it right now. So I'm going to talk about things today, and in the, about the next uh, three or four weeks, we'll move into that new series, and we'll dive into this in extreme detail. The last time I taught on Revelation, it took 27 weeks to get through the book of Revelation, but we will. We'll go line by line, and we'll understand what God wants us to know. So here's what the Bible says will happen, and the signs we should be looking for, and if any of these happen, we'll start to pay attention. Knowledge will increase without rest. We'll have a cashless society based on microchips. Arise in the interest of the occult, instant visual communication around the world, mark increase in natural disasters, wars, and pandemics. Christian martyrdom will increase. There will be a lack of concern for the value of life. Arise in spiritualism and new age religions. People will worship creation, not the creator. Disregard for the sanctity of marriage. World events will center around Jerusalem. Israel will become its own nation. There will be fear and preoccupation with the end of the world. There will be moral decline. Scoffers will be popular and bring doubt to the masses about Jesus. People will doubt the creation story. People will doubt Noah's story. There's also prophecies of a one-world government, one-world military, one-world religion, and an army of 20 million from East China. World Islamic armies are going to turn against Israel, and that's just the first 25 or so prophecies about the times we live in right now. Our world today is almost perfectly described in writings from 2,000 years ago. Hundreds of prophecies, each one correct, not one wrong yet. There's no way you can truly study this book with an open mind and deny that God wrote it. It is incredible, the themes, the processes, the foreshadowing. God went to great extremes to make sure that his followers would know what in the world is going on. Jesus said we should know from the lesson of the fig tree. Matthew 24, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer's near. Also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Matthew 24, Jesus speaking, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. No one knows the day and hour. Only the Father, Jesus says. But we should know the lesson of the fig tree. We should recognize the season. We should be able to look and see that we are living in a very appointed time. People will scoff at us, but it's later than it's ever been. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. He said it'd be like in the days of Noah, people scoffing and leading others astray until the sprinkles started turning to showers. I firmly believe the waters of prophecy are sprinkling on us right now. Jesus is very near at the gates. And we will see that in the fall feast, huge pieces of the puzzle around Jesus' second coming start to come together. But before we dive into the fall feast, I want to consider the time between the spring feast and the fall feast. That time in between. As we've discussed, feast represents God's dealing with the Jewish people as a nation. Major encounters between God and his covenant people. But during the long, hot summer months, nothing happens. There are no feasts. Now, these summer months painted a prophetic picture for the Jewish people. There would be a time of separation, a time of no feasts, a time when there were no appointed times with God from the Jewish nation, a time when God would not be dealing with them on a national basis. Now, they had intimate fellowship with God. Remember, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then they immediately turned back around and came back for the festival of weeks or Pentecost. 
They'd been to Jerusalem twice so far in the spring. They had one more time to come back in the fall, the, the, the pilgrimage feast. They'd been through the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and now nothing. Not since they returned from Pentecost. There's nothing for them. No evidence of God doing anything. Three long, hot summer months where there's no feast. And it's prophetically significant because we're living in that time right now. You see, we're living in the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We're in that zone. It's a line prophetically between the first and second coming, a time when God would turn away from the Jewish nation for a while. A time when he's grafting Gentiles into the vine. Some call the time that we're living in right now the church period or the time of the Gentiles. It's a time when God is primarily calling Gentiles into his kingdom. When the full harvest of Gentiles is complete, this era will end. And it will be signified by the first fall feast. On a future day, a day foretold by the fall feast, the trumpet will sound, the Gentile people period will come to a close, and God will turn his attention now back to the people, the Jewish people of the original covenant. Okay? He will fulfill the appointed times of the feast. So in the spring, there's a harvest, everything's going well, the Jewish people are pulling close to God, and then there's this dry period. And in the dry period, prophetically, the Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom. And then God's going to say when, and we're going to hear the trumpet blow, and then the things start to happen at the end to bring the Jewish people back in relationship with God. Three fall feasts foreshadow major prophetic events in the life of the Messiah. So let's take a broad overview of these three feasts. The first feast is called the Feast of Trumpets. The trumpet sounds a wake-up call for repentance. For the Jewish people, the reason they have this Feast of Trumpets is it's a reminder to them that in 10 days, they're gonna have to atone for their sins. They've got 10 days to figure out what they've done wrong, make sure they atone for their sins, and make sure they end up in the book of life. So the trumpet blowing for them is a warning sign. 10 days later, the second feast occurs, the Day of Atonement. It's the holiest day of the year. That's the day where they've had 10 days to think about their sins as people and as a nation. And now the high priest enters the Holy of Holies only once a year to atone for the sins of the Jewish people. We'll get to that next week. The third fall feast and the final feast of the year is the Feast of Tabernacles. When the work is done, the harvest is over and everyone comes together to celebrate and they live in tents. They remind themselves that the first people were nomadic and prophetically, it's an ingathering of all believers, Gentiles and Jewish people forever. The feasts point and paint the picture of our future. So this is the first time in this series that I've really outlined the entire prophetic picture given to us in the appointed times. Passover, the Lamb of God is sacrificed for the sins of the world. While the people in the temple were sacrificing their lamb, Jesus was dying on the cross. The unleavened bread, he's sinless, he's buried, he's put away. He's brought back on the feast of first fruits when he overcomes death. And then the feast of weeks, the arrival of the Holy Spirit 50 days later, the beginning of a new mission and the beginning of a new covenant in Christ's blood, replacing the old covenant and ushering in the time of the Gentiles. Trumpets, the trumpet sounds. And I believe when that happens and the rapture occurs, and we'll get into that in great detail. I'm a pre-trib rapture person. Just, that's okay. Nobody will know when we get there. He can solve it all then. Y'all know I don't do a lot on dividing over things. I mean, we'll figure it out. Um, and I'll explain why both today and in the future, why I believe that it makes the most sense from Scripture. As soon as the trumpet sounds, as soon as the rapture occurs, the Gentile period is over. Done. The focus turns back to the Jewish people. Prophetically, the Jews begin to realize the depths of their sin. The trumpet, the rapture, wakes them up. They begin to look at themselves, and they begin to ask, maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And then I believe another trumpet will sound at Jesus' second coming later in the rapture. We'll cover all of that. I don't want to get lost in that today. But the Day of Atonement, prophetically, is the day that the Jewish people come back to Jesus. 
It's an answer to prayer. Remember when Jesus was coming in uh, uh, to Jerusalem uh, during Holy Week, he was going to be crucified, but he stopped and he prayed. And he said, if only you had let me gather you. I was so ready, but you haven't. And he prayed for the Jewish people. And he, he prayed that one day they would return, and one day they will. And it'll be the prophetic fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Instead of the priests going into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling blood to cover the entire nation, individual Jewish people will step through a, corn, a torn curtain and meet God for themselves because they believe in the blood of Jesus. Then there's the Feast of Tabernacles, the end of the year, the, everybody coming together, everyone celebrates, and there's no work to be done. It's all about being together. So today we continue with the Feast of Trumpets. Leviticus 23, 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. You shall present a food offering to the Lord. Now, a couple of things are going to happen here that become very interesting. After Jesus is sacrificed as the Lamb of God, even the feasts themselves don't tend to sacrifice animals. Notice this is a food offering. We'll get to that later. Offerings. On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation, basically a holy day. No work. It's a day you blow trumpets. So on the Day of Atonement today, if you were over in the Holy Land, you would hear trumpets blowing all day long. The blowing of the shofar, it would signal the beginning of this day. And that's how they do it today. It's a day to blow horns. They look at the calendar. They go, oh, seventh month, first day. We're off today. Everybody blow your horn. That's not how it was in the first century. You see, they had a hard time figuring out when the month actually started. We'll get to that. But the blowing of the shofar occurred at various times throughout the year, at various moments. It could be a call to assemble. It could be a command for Israel to move out. It could be a call to war. Preparation for announcement, a warning of judgment to come, a call to celebrate or worship. The shofar basically got people's attention. And whenever the trumpet blows, God's people are to stop and take notice. The Jewish author Ari Goldman in his book, Being Jewish, says this, the sound of the shofar, the ram's horn, is kind of a spiritual alarm clock for the soul. Priests blew trumpets all the time, but only twice in scripture do we see God blowing a trumpet. And in both cases, it's a shofar. First time was with Moses on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. Remember, this happened at the very first Pentecost. The smoke went up, after, uh, smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The next time God chooses to blow a trumpet, Zechariah said, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of the hosts will protect them and on that day, the Lord their God will save them. A day in our prophetic future when God will blow the trumpet again. Now this feast is very unique and I wanna just explain why it's unique because it's gonna make some differences later. The first thing is this feast begins in darkness. Okay, each new month started the morning that the moon came up, okay? And so initially it starts in darkness. The month begins when they see the first sliver of light around the moon, okay? And you may go, oh, that's easy. No, it wasn't. In other words, for them to celebrate this feast, the priests had to see the light around the moon and declare that this was the first day of the month. If the moon wasn't lit up, they had to wait till tomorrow, okay? Now, when that sliver of light came, two or more priests had to agree that the new moon had actually come. Sometimes it was hard to tell. Other times, clouds were an issue. Each month, the priests would make a short blast from the shofar to let people know the new month has started. So every month, first day, early in the morning, 
sliver around the moon, priest says, they agree, they blow a short burst on the shofar, telling everybody this is the first day of the month. But on the seventh month, the last month, they made a long, loud blast of the shofar to let everyone know that light had penetrated darkness, that the light had come in and that the Feast of Trumpets was beginning and today is a high holy day. Every other feast occurs in the light. Now, we don't pay much attention to this, but the, the months actually start and end based on what the moon's doing. Second thing about this feast, no one knew exactly when it would occur. Kind of like a snow day. Do y'all have snow days when you're in school? You didn't know until that morning that this day was that day? That's what would happen to them. They would wake up on a certain day that they thought was the first of the month, and they'd wait to see if the shofar blew. And if the shofar blew, they knew today was a holy day. If not, they knew it was going to be tomorrow. You see, because the new moon always comes 29 and a half days after the last new moon. Okay? Now, the problem is it could come on the 29th. It could come on the 30th. They had to wait and see which day was it going to be this month. Those who lived in Jerusalem celebrate one day because they could hear the shofar. Those who lived outside of Jerusalem were never quite sure when the day started, and they celebrated both days to make sure they didn't miss it. The Feast of Trumpets became known as the day no one knows for sure. That was what they called it. This is the day no one knows for sure. Now here's the other thing. It was a Sabbath, but there was no preparation day. Most of the Jewish people prepared for the Sabbath. Even the weekly Sabbath, they would make their food. They would store it so they'd do no work on, on uh, Saturday night to Sunday night. They never knew exactly when the day was going to be. They knew the season. They knew that within a few days it was going to happen, but they didn't know the exact day and time, so they had to be ready. They, they had to prepare for this day in advance. Each day of the month prior, after the morning prayers, the rabbi would blow a short blast on the shofar. Shofar, it served as a call to repentance and a reminder. Basically for the Jewish people, when they hear this long blast at the beginning of the seventh month, it tells them 10 days from now, the priest is entering the Holy of Holies. You need to figure out what sins you've had. You need to make sure you've atoned for them. You need to make sure you're forgiven. 10 days, okay? Now, since the Jewish people no longer do sacrifices, those 10 days are for good deeds now. That's when you donate your money. That's when you serve the homeless. That's when you do whatever, because you got 10 days before the priest goes into the Day of Atonement. So when we think of the Feast of Trumpets, we picture light breaking through darkness. It's expected, but we don't know exactly when. There's no preparation day, so we have to stay ready and we have to wait and listen for the trumpet blast. The Feast of Trumpets begins to paint a prophetic picture and it is the trumpet that signals the new fall season of appointed times. The book of Revelation opens with John saying this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in this book and send it to the seven churches. Now, I can't prove it, but I think the trumpet we're going to hear is the voice of God himself. And as we go further into Revelation, we're going to begin to see the literal fulfillment of this feast. Revelation 4.1, and after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what may, must take place after this. Prophet Joel said, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Jeremiah said it this way, I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. The trumpet is a warning, it is a wake-up call. We are to all be watchmen waiting and watching for the trumpet to blow. The three fall feasts signal Jesus' second coming. The next event on our prophetic calendar is the shout of the trumpet. Paul says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel and with the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we'll always be with the Lord. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He tells the Corinthians, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now let me share with you why so many, including myself, believe that there's strong biblical support for the rapture occurring during the Feast of Trumpets. All four spring feasts were filled specifically and intentionally in the life of Jesus. We saw that. Every feast mirrored a big event in his life. So we should expect that the next three will do the same. It's unlikely God would appoint seven times and only have four of them point to the Messiah. The phrase, on the day no one knows, commonly refers to the Feast of Trumpets. We just talked about that. To Jewish people, when you said, on the day no one knows then you would be talking about the Feast of Trumpets. Jesus said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. On the day and hour, nobody knows. While no one knows the exact day, time, and year, Paul tells us the day of the Lord should not surprise us. That even though we don't know the exact day, we don't know the exact moment, we shouldn't be shocked when Jesus comes back. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Paul said, look, Christ followers shouldn't be surprised. We should be looking ahead. We should be hoping. We should be praying that today is the day. No one knows the day and time, he says, only my Father. Now, to understand what he's really saying here, you've got to understand Jewish weddings. The phrase, no one knows the day except my Father, was a groom's answer to when are you getting married? When will the wedding be? They didn't have announcements. They didn't have save the dates. They didn't have all this stuff. When you fell in love with somebody and you wanted to marry them, you you basically uh, got engaged to your bride. You came to her, you got her approval, you got her father's approval, and you gave her a gift. And it was a significant gift. And the gift said, look, you can trust me, I'm coming back. Keep this until I return. This is my gift to you that validates our relationship. I'll be back. That gift was to help sustain and provide her while he's gone. Then he would go away, but he promised to return as soon as the father said it was okay. His father. He would leave, go to his father's house, and he had to build an addition to the house for his new family. Okay? So he had to go. Only his father could decide when the addition is complete and it's time for his family to come back. Right? When everything was done and the father said it was time, then the groomsmen would assemble and lead the groom to go get his bride. She never knew what day it was going to be. She had no idea. When everything was done, the groomsmen go out on the streets, usually at night, to surprise the bride. They blew the ram's horn to tell the whole town the groom is coming. The groom is coming. Everyone get ready for the wedding. Wedding were huge things in Jewish culture. The processions were usually in the dark of the night. I think it's because the groom couldn't wait any longer. So the bride had bridegrooms who were to stand ready and be ready. And when the lamps to light the way back to the bride's new house. So they would go get the bride at her father's house. They'd have a procession. They would celebrate. They would do all kinds of things. They would light the lights. They would take the candles through the street to her new home with her new husband. The bride was swept away by the wedding party and taken to her fiancé for the wedding. The wedding ceremony was a great celebration. Once they were married, the groom would steal away the bride as soon as they were married. They would consummate their marriage and they'd celebrate a honeymoon for seven days. No one saw them. They went away. And then they would return to join the celebration. It's still going on. Seven days. They're still there. They come back seven days later. 
Jesus constantly uses marriage language to speak about his relationship with his followers. He is the groom. The church, the followers of his are the bride. They ask about end times and he says, no one knows the day, only my father. Do you remember that he said he was going away to prepare a room for us? Hmm. Just like a groom. I'm going away to prepare a room for you. Oh, by the way, here's the gift of the Spirit to seal the promise until I return. A gift that will sustain them and provide for them until he comes back. His return will be signaled by the blowing of the trumpets. His bride, the church, his followers will be swept away to be taken to him. A great wedding ceremony in the heavens. He repetitively warns that the moment will come like a surprise, like a thief in the night. After the rapture, I believe that the bride is taken away for seven days on a honeymoon. We will be with Jesus. Those seven days are what I believe are the seven years of tribulation on earth. I believe that while we're having a wedding feast with Jesus, the world is going to be going through all kinds of stuff. The world will be in a time of tribulation. At the end of seven years, Jesus will return with his bride, now armored to defeat Satan and his armies. With that context in place, I want you to listen to a parable Jesus taught in the discussion about recognizing end times. They just asked him, how will we know? Better question, not how do we know? How will Remnant know? Because it's later than it's ever been. How will they know? Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they had no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oils with their lamps. Okay, so there's three main characters, Jesus, the bridegroom, one group prepared for the groom's return, anticipating his return. They had oil, they had extra oil, they were ready. Just in case another group had not prepared, they looked like believers, they acted that way on the outside, there's no oil in their lamps. Oil is a signal of the Holy Spirit. They have no oil. They worship like believers, they hang out like believers, they're not truly prepared when Jesus shows up. Now know that these were all virgins, that usually means 12 to 20 years old. Bridesmaids in Jewish culture were not yet married. They had one function at the wedding ceremony. They were to be prepared for anything and give anything that the bride needs. Whatever the bride needs, that was their job. But their primary job was to light the way for the, professional, for the processional so they could get to the home, they could get home. They all looked prepared. All of them thought they'd be at the wedding. One group knew their responsibility, prepared for it, and were anticipating it. The other group took shortcuts, did things their way, and weren't prepared. Verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose, virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. The wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy it for yourselves. The bridegroom was delayed. Took longer than everybody thought for the groom to come back. Didn't mean he wasn't coming. They fell asleep. The groom came in the night unexpected. All 10 were surprised. Five were prepared, five were not. Not all were ready to come out and meet the bridegroom. Those that were not prepared tried to use the preparations of the other people, but they couldn't. You see, that's an important point. When Jesus comes back, if you don't have oil in your lamp, it's too late. You can't live your life based on what the people around you are doing with Jesus. Your life is based on what you're doing with Jesus. You will either be at the wedding feast or not based on what you do, not on the people you hang out with. As Christians, we share generously with one another, but the one thing that we are unable to share is our preparations for the coming of the kingdom. 
Each believer must stand and fall based on their own preparation and their own resources. Matthew, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. Those who were ready went to the wedding. Those who were not were left behind. And there at the door, it'll close and he'll say, I don't know you. So what are we supposed to do with all this? Feast of Trumpets is going to usher in the next great event in the appointed times calendar. Every indication from scripture is that the rapture of the church will occur during this feast. Jesus told us to know the signs and to be ready. So are you, is the question. One day in the future, one very real day, very solemnly appointed day, Jesus is going to come back for his bride. And I believe, along with many others, that he'll return during the Feast of Trumpets. I don't know what year. I don't know what day. I don't really have any idea. But I think it'll be in the fall, and I'm going to know that I can see the times. I can see the events. I know what the prophetic feeling of the Scripture has been like so far. Am I going to tell you the date and time? No, but I will guarantee you it's within the next 80 years. Did he just go there? Yeah. How do I know it'll be in the next 80 years? Because most of you are over 20. And within the next 80 years, you're either going to die and see Jesus or he's going to come back. Either way, you're facing Jesus in the next 80 years or less. And we're to be ready for it. This idea that we're going to live forever only works in California, and it doesn't work very long. (laughs) We are to be ready. Jesus is coming back into our existence soon. It bothers me that so many are trying to predict when it happens instead of making sure there's oil in their lamp and they're ready for it. You are not in darkness for that day to take you by surprise. Let me shape your reflection a bit of the time of the Feast of Trumpets. Rosh Hashanah will occur this year between September 25th and it ends September 27th. If this is the year, are you ready? If I'm totally wrong and it's today, are you ready? What do you need to do between now and then? What's the oil look like in your lamp? Where will you be when the door closes? You gonna be with a wedding party or are you gonna be out on your own? The rapture or the church or in our day, it's on our day planner. I don't know what day, but it's coming. Does that change your week at all? Does it amp up your urgency for sharing the message? Does it increase your desperation to make sure you know Jesus and not just know about him? Does it send you into a time of self-examination and repentance and self-confession? just to make sure you've trusted Jesus and your name is in the book. That really changes everything, doesn't it? You see, no one knows when Jesus will return. But we're supposed to live every day with the thoughts that you're having right now. Waiting and watching. Looking to the sky ready to fly. And I believe that this feast serves as an annual reminder to everybody, get ready. The trumpet blows. Examine yourself. Day of atonement is coming. It's a foreshadowing of a day in the future when the light of the world, Jesus, begins to penetrate the darkness. And his bride will be caught up in the clouds with him. We're to stay prepared and to be reminded that it's later than it's ever been. Many will discover, just like I did, pretending to be part of the band, that the appointed time when the trumpet blows, it's obvious those who are prepared and those who are not. It's obvious who's been faking it and who hasn't. See, all 10 looked the part that day. Five of them were ready. Jesus at the gate, the conductor starts the music. Soon it will be the appointed time for the trumpets to play. Are you sure that you and everybody you know is ready for that moment? All you need to do to join the wedding feast is to know that God loves you, that he sent his son Jesus as a gift for you. God loved, God gave. 
to believe that he took the punishment you deserved on the cross. He took your place. Your sins require punishment from a holy God, and he took your place. He stood there for you, and he was literally whipped and beaten because of what you've done. Died on the cross, and he was resurrected. He died your death. He died the death that you owe the Father. He did it so you could have life. So we believe. To accept, to receive, to trust that Jesus did on the cross will save us. We believe. And then we receive. God loved, God gave. We believe, we receive. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. So loved, not loved, so loved. What it means is he loved the world beyond anything we could ever imagine. And when you see the prophetic feast, when you see the plan for the Messiah, all you see is dripping love. So loved the world that he gave his only son. God loved, God gave. That whoever believes in him, we believe shall not perish, but have eternal life, we receive. God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive. For God, and this is the verse everybody forgets. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He's on a salvation mission. Paul would say that there's no condemnation for those in Christ. Why? Because Jesus already took it. All the wrath, all the anger, everybody calling out to God, do something. Do something about the Holocaust. Do something about child molesters. Do something about women that are raped. Do something about sex. Do something, God, you gotta do something. And he did, he poured it all out on Jesus, every drop of it. All his wrath, all his anger, all his justice. So there is no condemnation left for those who are in Christ because Jesus took your place already. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. It's a gift, freely given by the Father because we believe. And what do we believe? We believe that on a very historic, very real day, God, as Jesus, went on the cross and took the punishment for our sins. He not only died, he suffered and died. He was the Lamb of God, sacrificed. And because of that, we have hope. Because of that, we receive the gift of the Spirit. Because of that, we can know that we're in God's family and we can know that we are part of the bridegroom, bride's team. And we wait because we know the promise is true. We're gonna think about this this week. I want you to prepare yourself to meet God. It's later than it's ever been. When you see the signs, he says he's at the gate. People ask me a lot, when do you think the rapture is gonna come? And my answer is always, when the only thing left that will get non-believers to turn to Jesus is the rapture. As soon as the rapture occurs, a lot of people are going to start trying to pack their lamp with oil. And it'll be too late. Okay? They, they can meet Jesus after the rapture. I'm not saying they're gone forever. What I'm saying is, you don't want to wait and prepare. You don't want to be here. And here's my question that I want you to think this week. Is it really going to take the rapture to get you to believe? I mean, really? I want everybody to bow their heads. God has brought us to this moment, and I want to make sure we're ready. So, you may be here today, and you may go, you know what, this is nuts. This is crazy talk. I've been there. But there's also something inside of you going, this is why I brought you here. This is the moment I've been waiting for. I want you to see the truth. And something deep inside you is saying, you know what, this is true. I can feel it. I don't fully understand it. I don't know the Bible, I don't, but I know this is true. That's God's voice drawing you to him. But only you can make the decision to follow or not. So if you truly believe God is moving you in this moment to surrender, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just quietly to yourself, just you and God. God, I don't know everything I need to know. What I do know, though, God, is that I've made a pretty good mess of my life. I've tried to live it without you. I've tried to be my own God, and truthfully, God, I'm just not good at it. I'm anxious. I'm worried. I can't see the future. I don't 
know how to be forgiven because I can't forgive myself for the things I've done. God, you know everything I've done. It's right in front of you. I can't hide it from you. Your word says that you still love me and you never give up on me. So God, if you'll have me, I, I, I believe. I, I, I've been sitting here listening and I just know this to be true. Jesus died for me. He came to earth. It was you. You came to earth. You took the punishment for us and you resurrected and you're coming back. And I want to make sure I'm ready for that, God. So God, in this moment, to the best of my ability, I surrender every drop, every ounce I have. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross, not for everybody, but specifically for me. He died for everybody, but we're talking about me. So God, I accept your gift. I grab it with both hands. I hold on to it because it's the only hope I really have. So in this moment, God, if you'll have me, I'm all yours. For many of us who are believers, we've let the oil run really low. We got busy going around doing our thing, missing the very thing we're here for. God, we fill our lamp by spending time with you. We fill our lamp by prioritizing your kingdom over ours. We fill our lamp by abiding in you, praying, reading scripture, worshiping, serving, surrendering, giving. So God, help us to make sure our lamps are full. Help us to make sure that we're watching, that we're looking. And whether you come on the Feast of Trumpets or any other day you decide to come, God, help us to be ready. Help this church to be ready. Help us to not be shocked or surprised. And God, I pray when that door is shut and we all look around that every single one of us is there at the wedding. God, open our hearts. We're gonna go deeper into this as we go. But today's enough for today. We love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.